Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in canceled, shut-down New York City, where everything is closed. I will not be complaining about the current state of affairs. We all know that I am unable to work in my capacity as stand-up comedian, and we also know that live poker is basically (laughs) on hold for the moment, but I want to talk about a few things for which I am feeling grateful. I think it's easy when things go bad, like they're going bad now, and there's no question that they're going bad. I'm grateful, though. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for this platform, which gives me a chance to still, in a sense, ply my trade, practice my craft. I'm extremely grateful for all of you listeners for supporting this podcast and for showing the love on Twitter at Clayton Comic and of course for everyone who has left a five-star review on iTunes for this podcast I'm grateful because all of that just keeps me going and allows me to have a creative outlet I know like you I am certainly jonesing for poker I'm dying to play Uh, Online poker is illegal in my state of New York, so I can play on the questionable sites, but not on WSOP.com or in any of the legal sites that are actually right across the river from me as I live. Outside my living room, I I literally have a view of New Jersey, so that's the irony. All those people across the river can play online poker and I can't. I've seen a lot of tweets suggesting that the federal government should legalize online poker during this time. Obviously, that's a no-brainer. They should have legalized it a long time ago. They never should have illegalized it uh, back with the highly questionable attachment of the UIGEA to a port security bill back in I don't know, 2005, 2006, whatever that was. So, of course, we all agree that online poker should be legal. Now, is the government going to make a priority of that? Would they actually get it passed and up and running before the coronavirus itself is actually history? Well, based on what I've seen, I would bet against that because the United States government is very, very slow uh, to do anything. and And they've never made online poker a a priority. So I'm not getting my hopes up for this leading to some sort of all 50 states having free reign to play poker like we did in the old days. But I am seeing that the online sites are reporting an extreme uptick in traffic just in the last week. So in places where it's legal and therefore reported, A lot more people are playing online. So one thing that that has done for us is it's created a 
online circuit event, an online circuit series that is a little higher stakes than what they normally have on WSOP.com. So because they had to cancel a few stops, one of which was in Atlantic City, another one was in uh, Los Angeles area, I believe. So because of that, they tried to basically make up for some of that revenue by having a higher stakes online event, which may be where we're headed as far as this year's WSOP. Certainly they already had, I think, nine or ten bracelet events that were scheduled to be played online. So I see no reason why those events can't still happen, even if the rest of the WSOP is canceled. So uh, I don't know. I'm not I'm not going to bet on it. I'm, I, as I mentioned before, I'm not about to bet against Doug Polk and Mike McDonald about whether bracelet events occur this year. I know that the WSOP is a huge investment, as are Coachella and South by Southwest and a lot of other big things that have been canceled. How about the National Basketball Association or Major League Baseball? I mean, a lot of things are being shut down because of this very serious disease. But unlike those other sports, poker can be played online. So one has to wonder whether that's where we'll be this summer. Of course, it would be great if more than just a few states could participate, but at this point, I wouldn't get my hopes up about that. Although if it happens, I'll be pleasantly surprised, and that will be one more thing for which to be grateful. Another thing on my list is streaming services. Uh, Can you imagine staying inside for 24 hours a day without YouTube, Hulu, Amazon Prime, (laughs) Netflix, and of course, my personal favorite, Poker Go. I just can't imagine what this experience would be like without all of these wonderful services where I can get what I want, when I want it, anytime. So I'm grateful for that. And I've been reviewing the World Series of Poker main event from last year, 2019, as you all well know, and we will be continuing our review of that in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to suggest all of you take some time today in the middle of your woe is me and think about how you don't have a cough or a very high fever, even though as a planet we are suffering right now. Some are suffering a lot more than you are if you're listening to this. So let's just keep those people in mind and at least while we have it, be grateful for our health. Now with that out of the way, I feel less guilty about talking poker at a time like this. So let's continue our discussion of the 2019 main event final table as seen on Poker Go. So we're still six-handed on this first day of final table coverage uh, out of the 8,500 and some odd players who decided to pony up the $10,000 entry, we're down to six. And the blinds are still 600,000, 1.2 million with the 1.2 million big blind ante. So there is 3 million in the pot as the cards are being dealt. The stacks are the two halves, 
Hossein Ensan and Gary Gates. Uh, Ensan with about 200 million and Gates with just under 170 million. And the other four players, each with 50 million or less, with your short stack, Dario San Martino with only 28 million, M of 9.3. So, uh, some players are getting to the point where they should be trying to find a shove spot. We're not quite there yet for most of these short stacks, but they're getting down to that point. In this hand, the action folds to Ensign in the cutoff, and he opens to $2.8 million, which has more or less become the standard opening bet at this table. Now there is... million in the pot, and the action folds around to Zen Kai, currently with 30 million in chips. He's our big blind, holding the ace of clubs and jack of hearts. So he's fifth out of six right now with exactly 30 million, and he has ace jack. Let's talk about how you should play ace jack when you have an M of 10, or as many of you will prefer, about 25-ish big blinds. Well, you could certainly make a case for just ripping it in right here. You know, uh, the cutoff open from Ensign is probably a range that is inferior on average to your holding, which is relatively strong, ace-jack offsuit. I mean, it's not a hand that I get too excited about seeing, but it's certainly uh, good enough to shove here. It is a plus EV play. If you happen to run into a monster, many times you will have significant equity against that monster. Suppose Ensign has a snap call with something like pocket kings or pocket queens, Uh, In that case, we're going to have about 30% equity. Now, when you are fifth in chips and you're trying to get all in, you don't want to be sitting there with 30% equity, (laughs) of course. Uh, Even worse, if he has ace-king, then in that case, you'll have 25% equity, roughly. So we don't want to be in those positions. But the point of shoving would be that you will take it down a good amount of the time. And when you are called, you won't be doing that badly against the calling range. Uh, The problem is, it's just a little too much because at this point, there's 5.8 million in the pot. Let's go ahead and round that up to six. And then we shove for 30. So we're putting in 30 million to hopefully win the 5.8. So you can see that is one fifth of our current stack. So we're trying to increase our stack by about 20% with this shove. It's a little less than six, so let's be fair. Let's call it 19%. Essentially, you're trying to increase your stack by 20%. Is it worth my tournament life to do that? Should I only be looking for hands that I can shove and want action? Well, I mean, of course, the idea of game theory tells us that we need to have some quote-unquote bluffs in our range. 
I mean, we'd love to be able to make this play with pocket jacks, pocket queens, ace-king. We probably would want to make a different play with aces or kings. But on balance, you might want to make the same play with those hands as you would with jacks or queens so that your hand isn't too easily read. And theoretically, we should have some hands that don't want to get called. In practice, though, at the final table of the main event, I don't think you're going to see players like Zenkai go ahead and rip it in with something like 9-7 of clubs here. I just don't think that that is something they would do, nor do I think they should. There is real value to the tune of $400,000 just surviving until there are five players left. The problem for me, as I always say, is, yeah, the difference between sixth place and fifth place may be $400,000, but the di- difference between sixth place and first place is almost $9 million, and that's why I play for first. And we talked about that before. I'm not going to get into that here. But to shove or not to shove, let's talk about whether Kai could possibly make a different play. What about a smaller three bet, possibly with the intention of folding to a four bet? I mean, I think that play has its merits, especially if Kai has been paying attention to Hossein Ensan's general strategy. Although he's basically been the big stack for two days now, he hasn't really been the aggressor. Uh, He hasn't been bullying everyone. He hasn't taken the Michael Dyer role from last year's final table. Not by a long shot. He's basically been calling a lot, seeing a lot of flops, and playing relatively conservatively, maybe taking a little stab here and there, but we haven't seen like a big all-in four-bet shove. That doesn't mean he doesn't have it in him, but based on the fact that players can find out from their friends what happened 30 minutes ago, at this point, Kai should be relatively convinced that Ensign is not one to get too far out of line. Combine that with the fact that Kai has basically been playing an ABC style himself, and therefore any shove that he might make or any sort of re-raise he might make will get a little bit more respect from Ensign than would, say, for example, Alex Fitzgerald. No, (laughs) that was a Freudian slip. I've been thinking about my friend Assassinato today. Uh, Alex Livingston, I should have said, who actually was at this final table and was making a lot of plays. So with all that in mind, I think that there is merit to Kai putting in a smaller three bet. Suppose he makes it something like 7.8 million. So five million more to call. And then Ensign will probably only shove when Ace Jack is toast, right? I don't know if he would necessarily want to shove pocket eights, pocket sevens. Maybe he would go with nines or tens. But to me, this looks so strong that Ensign would probably not shove over top of it. Uh, I do think he would call with a lot of his range, though. He's going to be in position against the three better with whatever he has. And by the way, I don't believe that I actually told you what he has yet. Yeah, I was saving that information for later. So with his range 
and San would most likely be doing a lot of shoving with his best hands and calling with the rest of his range for the most part. I don't see him shoving with inferior hands to H-Jack, and I really don't see him folding very much at all. So therefore, you could say, well, then Kai should three bet bigger. The problem with that is we're starting to get close to a third of our stack. So if he makes it $10 million instead of the roughly $8 million I recommended, now you're putting in $10 million of your $30 million, and then when he does shove, it's pretty bad uh, to have to fold ace-jack in a spot like that. So, I don't know. On balance, you guys may be surprised, but I typically just rip it in here. Uh, when you don't care about whether you get 6th place or 5th place, you can make your strategy a little bit more pure. Uh, ace-jack, under the circumstances, is a very strong hand versus Ensign's raise. And I'd love to just pick up the 5.8, increase my stack by very close to 20%, and get a little bit closer to fourth place. I think it's well worth it here to go ahead and shove the ace-jack. And then you know what? If he calls me, I hope he's got pocket tens. Of course, Zen Kai and I do not have the same approach to <laughs> final tables. Uh, and and I, I'm really not disparaging him for that. This is just my sort of philosophy. If I know it's plus EV to shove here, I go ahead and shove and let the chips fall where they may, as they say. Uh, but he just calls and takes a flop, holding the ace of clubs, jack of hearts. Uh, there's now 7.4 million in the pot. Kai having approximately 27 million remaining in his stack. So he's got three and a half times the pot behind. So his SPR is three and a half, and that's never a good position to be in. Uh, if he flops a jack, he's supposed to try to commit. I don't know if committing with a top pair, top kicker type of hand versus the relatively tight Hossein Ensan is a profitable strategy. So that's why calling here doesn't feel good to me. But it is hard to play an M of 10. This is the kind of zone we try to stay out of chip-wise. Having a little more than 25 big blinds up to 35 or 40 big blinds is a very hard stack to play because it's just a little bit too... It's a little bit more than you want to shove pre-flop and it's just hard to navigate post-flop around the commitment threshold, which most of us feel is somewhere around 35%. So once 35% of my stack is in a particular pot and I'm not bluffing, I typically do want to remain committed to that pot. Now that doesn't mean, guys, that I need to try to get all in. It just means I can't fold. So the flop comes, queen of hearts, six of diamonds, five of hearts, and Kai is first to act. He's with this flop, except that he does have backdoor straight and flush possibilities. He doesn't have the ace of hearts. He has the jack of hearts on this two heart board. So it's not really the flop that Kai wanted. Uh, he checks. And I think the plan should be to fold. I mean, you took this conservative line before the flop. 
because you didn't want to risk the chips that you want to have later when you do decide to shove. So I think the plan of checking and calling is totally fine. If you didn't want to play your ace-jack for value pre-flop, now that you flopped basically an air ball, I think it's fine to check and fold. Uh, instead, Kai checks and Ensign bets $3 million into the $7.4 million pot and Kai calls. Okay, so what is Zen Kai planning to do? Is he trying to pick up outs so that he can go for a check shove? Is he looking to lead some turns when he picks up, say, a heart or a king or a 10 or even better, a jack or an ace? Um, you know, a heart would give him a jack high flush draw and a 10 or a king would give him a gut shot to go along with his overcard to the queen. As I mentioned, he doesn't have much here, guys. But if he's calling this $3 million, there needs to be a reason why. He calls, and with $13.4 in the pot now, we see a turn, which is the Four of Hearts. So that should be on Kai's list of cards that he welcomes. Uh, you know, we now have a flush draw. You might not get too excited about a jack-high flush draw, but listen, guys, if you have the jack-high flush heads up against a single opponent with a very wide range, you probably have the winner. So I think that Kai should be looking to play this card aggressively if he decided to call a flop, which, again, I would not have done. If I'm calling that flop, it's because I'm looking to check-shove the turn on certain cards. I can represent the flush here. I block certain flushes that Ensign won't have. I wouldn't have made this play. I want to clarify. I would not have made this play against the chip leader. I just think that calling and trying to bust me when he has something is just too tempting for a chip leader who has such a mountain of chips in front of him. It may just feel like swatting a fly getting rid of me. So therefore, I would have folded the flop if I didn't shove pre. If you force me to call the flop, then this is one of my favorite cards to see because I just picked up a flush draw with my jack of hearts and I'm going to play it aggressively. I like leading here, maybe for, I don't know, there's 13 million in the pot. Why don't you stick in a bet of like six and a half million and see how serious Ensign is about continuing with this hand. Uh, I don't like it because Ensign, as I said, hasn't really been pushing everybody around. Generally speaking, as I've watched every hand of this final table, Ensign's strategy has been to bet when he has it, call when he's not sure, and fold when he doesn't. So with that in mind, because he's now bet on the flop, I think we should have folded. But since we didn't, now that we have a flush draw, we might as well try to represent that flush. Instead, Kai checks, which is fine if the plan is to check and shove, which I think would be a very profitable play on this particular card, depending on the sizing. Ensign fires again, 7 million into the 13.4 million pot. And now I think we should abort the mission. This is a large bet. Uh, It's only half the pot, a little over. But for the sizing that most of the players at this table have been using, and for my remaining stack size, this is not the sizing against which check shoving feels right. Maybe if he 
came out for like a five million or even a five point five million. But the heavier side, the seven million there, just feels a little serious. And I think we should give up. I would really regret not shoving pre flop, and I would definitely feel very upset about having to fold a flush draw here against what could be a bluff, but it's just too much now, which is why we want to be more decisive when we're in this zone of 25 big blinds, M around 10. You want to try to get it in or at least be aggressive and take control of whatever hand you choose to play, especially with a hand as strong at a six-handed table as ace-jack offsuit. So instead, Kai has to fold. Uh, As the cards lay, I'll now reveal Ensign's hand. He had the 8-5 of spades. So he flopped bottom pair and picked up a gut shot straight draw on the turn. I don't believe he could have called if Kai had been... Well, of course he couldn't have called a shove pre-flop. But if Kai had chosen to lead the turn... I think that that was his best chance to win this pot as played. But I still think, as you can see, 8-5 suited is not going to call a shove. And that was the best opportunity to increase our stack by almost 20% with a very strong hand for the situation, ace-jack. Oh, by the way, before we discuss the next hand, I want to point out that in reviewing this final table... I noticed Gary Gates talking about having gotten information from his friends or his team (laughs) that was watching the stream, and he commented on a hand that I mentioned in last week's episode where I pointed out that he had an ace-four offsuit folded to him in the cutoff and chose not to open. Uh, He was kind of laughing about how he would normally open that hand, but something told him not to. And uh, if you remember from last week, the player to his left on the button had pocket king. So it could have been disastrous had he opened that. Um, But overall, the theme of this final table was people not being willing to pull the trigger And look, I get it. You know, there are literally millions of dollars at stake. You know, I hate having that kind of stack because there really isn't a good way to play it. But because of my play for the win approach, I think that I would have played it that way. Uh, If anyone out there is good with solvers and has some time during this quarantine, uh, would you plug that in for us with those uh, stacks and let me know? whether uh, shoving is plus EV and how the solver would play. Of course, the solver doesn't understand pay jumps and uh, table dynamics and what kind of player Ensign is. Like, But still, I'd be interested in what the computers think, if anyone would care to oblige. All right, so let's move on to the next hand. Now, guys, I have been very hard on Alex Livingston as I review this table. He, by the way, before this final table, had already accumulated over $700,000 in lifetime earnings. He's a grinder. He's a pro. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of the things he did at this final table, but I have to acknowledge that there's a chance he has reasons that are beyond me. There is more than one way to play a no limit hold'em tournament 
you guys know my attitude. I try to accumulate a big stack, put pressure on people, especially on the bubble. I like to have a big stack when the bubble is done, and then I start trying to get at least two times the average stack for the final table. And then once I'm at the final table, I put tremendous pressure on those that I think are trying to ladder up as I try to win the title. Um, <laughs> that's basically my tournament philosophy in a nutshell. Obviously, certain dynamics, certain variables can affect my willingness to play that basic strategy, but that is kind of my mindset going in. But I'm always willing to learn. You know, I think we need to be humble. And so I just want to acknowledge, especially before I review the hand I'm about to review, Alex Livingston is a good player. Obviously, he's had a lot of success for a long time in the game. Uh, this is one of the most talked about hands from this final table. So at this point, Livingston is under the gun with pocket queens. He's third in chips with 50 million. Um, the two big stacks, again, are Ensign and Gates with about 200 million each. So it's not even close with six players left. It appears to be Ensign or Gates and then everybody else. So among those who uh, constitute everybody else, Alex Livingston is the biggest stack with 50 million. The other players behind him have 39. 30, and 29, respectively. So he opens with pocket queens. He makes it 2.8 million, which again is the standard opening bet at this table. I like it. I'm sure all of you like it as well. Uh, folded to Dario Sammartino in the cutoff, and he calls, which is strange because he has the shortest stack of all with only 29 million in chips. I don't want to tell you what San Martino has just yet. Folded around to Gary Gates in the big blind, who makes it 13.3 million. All right. I don't want to tell you yet what Gary has either. Put yourself in Alex Livingston's shoes. You have 50 million in chips. So your M is about 17. That's a rough estimate on my part. 16 or 17. 41 big blinds in your stack, and you've got two queens. I mean, even as recently as five years ago, we just didn't ever consider folding pocket queens with fewer than 60 big blinds uh, pre-flop. It's just not something that you could do back then. The fact that, <laughs> sorry if you can hear my neighbors, um, <laughs> some children making some noise next door. I hope that this microphone isn't picking them up, but <laughs> these are the times we live in. Everybody's home, guys. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's try to make the case for considering folding here. I'll be honest, guys. It's not an easy case to make, but there is a case to be made, and it involves ICM. It also involves Gary Gates and what we've seen from him at this table. Gary Gates has been the most buttoned-up, second-place, big-stack chip leader in recent memory. His strategy, and rightfully so, by the way, has been to just play solid values. He doesn't want to get into some kind of raising war with his opponents. He's very, very happy just to be at the final table as an amateur player. And he's not a bad player. He's just, you know, it's not like... 
Gary Gates dedicates as much time as, as all of us to trying to improve our game and learn about the nuances and, and all that sort of thing. He's got a solid, obviously a solid fundamental understanding of the game, but I think I really like his approach to this table. He's like, you know what? There are some very good players at my table. Uh, I, I have a good stack. If I just don't screw this up, I should be able to win several million dollars today, which uh, for a guy who was uh, planning a proposal <laughs> in the weeks following the, the main event, uh, that's definitely something to, to think about. I'm not sure that Gary's mindset was, I'm going to try to win the championship. Uh, I know Gary personally, so but not very well. He's not like my bestie or whatever. But uh, I know that he was absolutely over the moon just to get this far in the main event, which is important to acknowledge because some of the players at this table were would be disappointed with anything less than first. And I think those players were Alex Livingston, Dario San Martino, and Hossein Ensign. So when Gary Gates puts in a three bet, and not a small one either, by the way, again, it was 2.8 and he made it 13.3, which is about 25% of Livingston's stack, a little bit more. So when you look at things that way, it's really threatening the stack we got to think about what kind of range a player like Gates would have in that spot. I mean, certainly he would do this with hands that beat us, kings and aces, obviously. He should do it with ace-king, and I think that he would. He might do it with jacks, and it does feel like jacks to me when it's such a big raise. A lot of times, players who don't balance perfectly, let's say, will make a much larger raise with jacks than they otherwise would with any other hand. So this really big bet feels like jacks to me. Should we be at all concerned about Dario's flat? I mean, with his stack size, an M under 10, actually, it feels like a very strong hand just about all the time. So we do have the possibility that Dario is slow playing, trying to double up with aces. Um, and then we have the chance that we don't block aces or kings, but we also don't block ace-king. And then you get into, well, I've only put in 2.8 million. Do I need to put in all 50? And I think the answer is no. I know a collective gasp throughout the entire listenership that I'm kind of on board with the fold here. <laughs> After everything I just said about not pulling the trigger and not wanting to lose the main event instead of trying to win it, uh, I just, I feel like in this spot, I feel Alex Livingston's pain. We haven't seen the big three bet from Gary Gates at all. He's not a player that's putting a move on us right now. This isn't ace-five suited. This isn't... Nine, seven of clubs. It's not any of those kind of hands. This is a real hand. And if it's a real hand, we can hope and pray that it's jacks, which again, it does kind of feel like, but I can't be sure. It could very well be aces or kings. And even if it's a king, ace king, I don't think Livingston would be too happy flipping a coin after already having been in such a comfortable, relatively comfortable third place chip position. So... 
He does fold, and many of you know this hand. Dario San Martino also folds, and Gary Gates takes it down with pocket tens. So this is a hand that may very well haunt Alex Livingston for the rest of his life. Uh, by the way, in 2013, Livingston made the final two tables of the main event too. So he wasn't playing. He has been here before. Well, not the final table, but I believe he got either 15th or 13th place back in 2013. So he's no stranger to this tournament. And that may have influenced his decisions earlier to maybe try to pick on players who might have been hot and nervous under the lights. So he opened and took some liberties that I disparaged in previous episodes. But this particular decision, I don't really mind it. I mean, I don't think that I could fold queens in that spot. Thinking about it now and realizing what Livingston saw, you know, I opened under the gun, which shows a lot of strength. San Martino calls with only $29 million behind. He puts in 10% of his stack with something. And then Gates, who hasn't made a move all day, as Norman Chad puts it, he doesn't have a hair out of place, <laughs> and he really hasn't, puts in this huge three bet. Queens don't look that good, honestly. I would still push and pray and hope that it was Jacks, especially because it does feel like Jacks, and I'd love to be getting it all in against Jacks. But more importantly to me, for my psyche, folding the winner here, when this is like really my spot to start contending for this bracelet. It's like you have pocket queen six-handed. What are you supposed to do? But under the circumstances, I do, I can get behind the fold. I understand the fold. I'm not sure I could have made it myself, but I do understand and I feel very sad for Alex Livingston because I have made plays on camera before that Everybody sees and they say, how did he do that? Why did he do that? And I would like to be able to tell a camera crew exactly what I did and why uh, so that the public who watches poker doesn't think what's wrong with him. Why is he stupid? And Alex got a, a ton of flack for this lay down. But honestly, I understand. Anyone who's ever played in a major event whether it was televised or not, whether it was streamed or not, we all have hands that we can say, I'd like to go do that one again. And I think for Livingston, this was that moment. He lays it down, hoping that everyone's going to say, wow, what a great lay down. How did he know that he was beat? But because he wasn't beat, instead they say, what a donkey. Look, guys, it's much easier when we can see the cards. Well, that will do it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoy these hands. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your solver results, uh, anything else you would like to share about these uh, hands from the 2019 main event. Here's hoping that there will be a 2020 main event in some form this summer. And more importantly, here's hoping that each and every one of you gets through this experience with not only your physical, but your mental and psychological health intact when all is said and done. If you're looking for a way to spend these days when you are locked in your home trying to avoid either contracting or spreading this awful virus that's going around, may I suggest 
a membership in Tournament Poker Edge. We have so many videos from all the best coaches, uh, some unbelievable training videos that you can watch and think a little bit more deeply about your poker game, learning from the likes of Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald, Colin Moshman, Daryl Jace, and so many more. We also have our forums where we discuss hands that our members played, whether it be in a $3 online satellite or in the Super High Roller Bowl. So everybody is welcome. And for as little as $25 a month, you can have access to all of the above and so much more. Visit TournamentPokerEdge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. Love nobody. Everybody, everybody knows she can't.